Welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. This is Amy, your host for this one woman, one mic show. And on today's episode, we will examine progressive rock and why some fans of the 70s embraced this genre and why some did not. I'm especially interested in why this form of rock was so popular in the 70s, which was most definitely the heyday of progressive rock. First, a very big thank you to everyone who has helped this show keep doing its thing with your nice ratings and reviews. I had some very nice emails this month, which is always appreciated. If you like, for the record, the 70s, hit pause. Go tap on the fifth star of your app and come back. It truly does help other people find the show. For some people, progressive rock is, was, too pretentious. And for others, it is sublime. Few people in the 70s were neutral on it. It was a love-hate thing. If you loved it, you loved the complexity. If you hated it, you could not understand why you would want to take rock music and mix it with classical music and come up with a 20-minute song that had nonsensical lyrics, and then you would have the gall to call it art. Ellen Willis, one of my favorite music critics and writers of the 70s, wrote this in 1979 for Griel Marcus's anthology, Stranded. The essay she wrote was about the Velvet Underground, but I found this to be an interesting take on rock as art, which she said started as soon as Bob Dylan plugged in his electric guitar at the Newport Folk Festival in 1965. Willis said, after Dylan went electric, creating rock opera and rock poetry was, from the rock and roll fans' perspective, a dubious one. At best, it stimulated a vital and imaginative eclecticism that spread the values of rock and roll, even as it diffused and diluted them. At worst, it rationalized a form of cultural upward mobility concerned with the creation of the appearance and the pretensions of art rather than the reality. The point being to improve rock and roll by making it palatable to the upper middle class. Either way, it submerged rock and roll into something more amorphous and high-toned called rock. I have questions. The idea that in the early 70s, rock changes to become more appealing to baby boomers that are growing into adulthood is something that we've explored many times before on this podcast. You could check out episode 17 on 70s singer-songwriters for more about that. This, of course, is partly what drives the splintering of rock into subgenres, heavy metal, southern rock, glam, punk, etc. What I have questions about is this concept of rock and roll values. When I hear that, I hear code for authenticity, purity. Here's what I think, and you may disagree. I think there is no such thing as a purity test for rock and roll. Despite the attempts of many authors and critics, past and present, to insist that rock is this or rock is that, I don't think so. We must keep in mind that rock was born out of the blues. Through this copying or borrowing or stealing or culturally appropriating from African-American musicians, it became many things. That in of itself is a stark reminder that rock was never pure. That is also why I'm not a fan 
of emphatically declaring that a song or a band makes real rock while another does not. If you would like to have a debate like that, uh, go find a diehard fan of Rush, and I'm sure they will gladly indulge you on that. No offense at all intended to Rush fans. They just like to debate those things I have found. That is why I shall not wade into the debate about what is allowed to be called progressive rock, and I am not here to dissect the difference between progressive rock and art rock. My focus here is understanding how the late 60s and early 70s created this space for rock that was inspired by classical music. I will assert right now that challenging the idea of art, which is entirely subjective, is in the 70s, is a very 70s thing to do. This is the me decade, the decade of psychotherapy and and liberation, or at least attempts to move toward liberation. Uh, For example, women's liberation, gay liberation, that sort of thing. The decade of raising consciousness. We did not have this collective vision of what progress meant, and it was up to us to explore that as individuals. And I'm telling you, that was the 70s. I can assure you of another thing. Rock culture did not invent the debate over authenticity. In the years between uh, World War I and the end of World War II, popular music in the U.S. was jazz. And do you think that there were not debates about authenticity then? Of course there were. Big big band versus swing, uh, Guy Lombardo versus Count Basie. And yes, when Bob Dylan played an electric guitar at the Newport Folk Festival in 1965, he really did piss off the folk music fans because he wasn't being, quote, authentic. I could get really history nerd on you right now and start talking about the two competing historiographies of the 18th and 19th century, romanticism and modernism, and what those movements have to say about authenticity, but I won't do that. Let's talk rock and roll instead. For much of popular music history before the 70s, music, in terms of what you could sell and what you could get on the radio, was about singles. Head over to episode two and hear more about radio's influence on country music, or episode five for more about how 70s radio gave rise to album-oriented rock and indirectly punk. The album as a vehicle for a concept that carried through from the first song to the last just was not a thing before the 70s. Radio wanted the hits and only the hits, and by radio, I mean AM radio. Nobody listened to FM because there was nothing to listen to. One of the first concept albums, which carried a concept from beginning to end, was Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys in 1966. Brian Wilson crafted each song with great care and said that in doing so, he hoped to make the best album in rock history. When it came out, critics and fans did not know what to think of it. They didn't even think it was the best album in Beach Boys history, let alone rock history. I think they just weren't sure what it was. Wilson created this wall of sound with instruments never heard in rock before, French horns and strings and bicycle bells and even aluminum cans. The number one song in America on July 30th, 1966, was Wild Thing by the Trogs.
Everybody's heard that, right? You know, sidebar on Wild Thing. I think the best use of Wild Thing in a movie was in the movie Major League, 1989. I think that, that's my vote. Anyway, Wild Thing by the Trogs, number one song, July 30, 1966. This is the week that Wouldn't It Be Nice by the Beach Boys entered the Hot 100 at number 84. That was the third single to be re- to be released from Pet Sounds. And this is the B-side of that 45. Again, kids, 45s are records. This is the B-side of Wouldn't It Be Nice. love you but long as there are stars above you you never need to doubt it I'll make you so sure about it God only knows what I'd be without you if you should ever leave me though life would still go on believe me show nothing to me So what good would living do me God only knows Imagine hearing God only knows for the first time in 1966. From Wild Thing to God Only Knows, we are in completely different musical atmospheres here. Brian Wilson completely changes the playing field and shows what pop music and albums can be. Pet Sounds is not progressive rock or psychedelic rock, but I think it's apparent of both of them. Then we see after that this kind of back and forth between the Beatles and, and the Beach Boys, each expi- each inspiring the other. Pet Sounds was inspired by the Beatles' album Rubber Soul, which was released in December 1965. Pet Sounds then inspires the Beatles, who respond with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, That was released on June 1st, 1967. And once again, the world has never heard anything like it. Every progressive rock band has Sgt. Pepper in its DNA. This is an album that was presented to the world as evidence that rock could be art and that it could be intellectual.
That is a day in the life from Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band from the Beatles, 1967. That part where John Lennon sings, I'd love to turn you on, got the song banned from BBC Radio because of concerns that it was a reference to drugs, which, of course, it was. That orchestra, though, and this with the overdubs and the reverb and the album art, which I am looking at right now, uh, young musicians born in post-World War II, baby boom era, can see these new paths for music and specifically for rock music. There were a lot of people who will say that this is not the best album that the Beatles have ever done. Uh, that course is all subjective, but a lot of people think it isn't. But in terms of innovation, it's, it's definitely one of the most innovative albums ever. Four years later, in March 1971, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer released their self-titled debut album, and on it is the song Lucky Man. Greg Lake called the song Lucky Man a medieval fantasy. He wrote it when he was 12 years old. What were you doing when you were 12? I know I was not writing songs. Uh, Greg Lake was writing songs. He recorded it when he was 20, a 20-year-old member of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, which was made up of these pieces of British progressive rock pioneers like The Nice and King Crimson. Lake said in 1973, when asked about the music his band was making, he said, fundamentally, you got to get back to the roots of our music. Most American rock bands are based on a blues heritage. We are based on a European heritage, which stems ultimately from classical music. And classical music is much more complex than the blues. A bullet that found him His blood ran as he cried No money could save him So he lay down and he died Keith Emerson on that Moog synthesizer there at the end, a signature part of Lucky Man from 1971. What on earth made this music popular in the United States? In Europe, classical music is high culture. Of course, there were distinct social classes in England, but even those not considered high class understood that classical music was considered the best. It was not even up for debate. It would make sense if you wanted to present your art, your rock music to the world and present it as worthy that you might base it on classical music or include elements of classical music. 
That does not explain the popularity of progressive rock in the United States. There had to be other factors that allowed it to take on oxygen and grow in America. It certainly was not that Americans loved their classical music in the 60s or 70s. We didn't. You know this is true. Your average American could not tell the difference between Bach or Beethoven or Tchaikovsky. John Rockwell wrote a piece on art rock for the Rolling Stone Illustrated History of Rock and Roll. And he wrote that in comparison to the British, Americans tend to be happy cave people. Most Americans wouldn't know a Beethoven symphony if they were run down by one in the middle of a freeway. In fact, this is me now, not Rockwell. In fact, it was more American to look down on classical music lovers as snobs. Here's some evidence of that. In January 1970, Chicago radio station WLS-FM ran an advertisement that was encouraging listeners to give progressive rock a try. The ad shows what looks to be a dad and his teenage son sharing headphones. In fact, you can go to my show notes, ftr70.com, and you can see the ad there. They were showing, uh, pardon me, sharing headphones in the same way that we might share earbuds today. Dad is blissfully listening to classical music, and son is checking out progressive rock. The headline of the ad reads, Classical music and progressive rock have a lot in common except to a snob. This is followed by a multi-paragraph pitch for the benefits of progressive rock, including this. Progressive rock has all the discipline of classical music and far more relevance to our times. And that was quoting a 55-year-old professor. WLS, which, by the way, is now a classic rock station, also invited people to send in for a printed introduction to progressive rock. In other words, this is rock for the high-minded intellectual, which is exactly why so many people hated it. They didn't want to think, they just wanted to feel. If you wanted to hear progressive rock on the radio, you were going to have to go to an FM station like WLS. This was not top 40 music. In general, it was not top 40 music because it was too long and it was too complex. For example, Carnival 9 on Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's 1973 album, Brain Salad Surgery, is just shy of 30 minutes long, and it didn't even fit on one side of a vinyl album. It is divided into movements, a la classical music, and called Impressions by ELP, and it is about a war between man and computer. Carnival 9 did make it to FM radio, but it, it, we could only hear one of those impressions. Most people know this part. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. There behind the glass stands a real blade of grass. Be careful as you pass. Move along, move along. Guaranteed to blow your head apart. Rest assured, you'll get your money's worth. With this show, it happened out of 
gave you about two minutes of a 30-minute song. Uh, I started about the eight-minute mark. It was announced in February 2020 that Carnival 9 is going to be made into a movie. Now, that should be very interesting. So if we are looking for a map from the 60s to the 70s that leads us to the success of progressive rock, we have identified the Beatles, the Beach Boys, and without a doubt, the growth of FM radio. I don't think progressive rock could have had any type of mainstream success, at least in America, without FM radio finding a foothold in the early 70s. I mean, a lot of cars didn't even have FM radio when the 70s began, and why would they? Nothing to listen to, despite the fact that FM obviously had a more clear signal. As FM begins to grow, underground radio stations played these interesting mixes of rock and blues and sometimes country. They were also um, not beholden to the idea that you had to play songs that were under three minutes. DJs were much more mellow and would sometimes just play an entire album side, which, hello, is perfect for a band like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, or a band like Yes. It was also true that stereo equipment became much more affordable for the average person. We're talking uh, receiver, tuner, turntable, equalizer, and of course, speakers uh, and headphones. Progressive rock was not intended for an AM transistor radio. Did the drug culture of the 70s have anything to do with the popularity of progressive rock? Of course it did. For example, uh, John Anderson from the band Yes said he was inspired to write Roundabout when he was high on weed. Everything was vivid and mystical, he said. He was literally in a van as the van maneuvered through roundabouts. He said it was a cloudy day and he couldn't see the top of the mountains. He could only see the clouds straight up. He remembered saying, oh, the mountains, look, they're coming out of the sky And that became this.
Roundabout from the Yes Fragile album, released in 1972. In 1973, Roger Waters of the band Pink Floyd wrote the lyrics to an album about madness, which is something that the band had some experience with. One of their founding members, Sid Barrett, while a musical genius, acted in ways that would politely be described as erratic. Maybe it was brought on by his LSD use, or maybe it was true mental illness, but whatever it was, it led to Sid Barrett being exiled from the band. Dark Side of the Moon explored many of the things that can lead us to losing our grip on reality. Money, work, war, uh, the passing of time. Each song is stitched together and moves at a very measured pace. There's also a unique use of sound effects, cash registers and coins clinking and things like that in an era long before digital sound effects were available. Now, there's nothing happy about Dark Side of the Moon, but it touched on something because Dark Side of the Moon was on the Billboard Hot 100 chart for 917 weeks. Perspective. I was about to enter third grade when it was released, and I was on the verge of graduating from college when it finally dropped off the charts. This is Pink Floyd's highest charting single of the 70s. This is Money. Hit its peak at number 13 on July 27th, 1973. Just to get a sense of how different this sound was, you know what the song was at number 12, just above it that week? It was this. My monster from his slab began to rise, and suddenly, to my surprise, he did the mash. He did the monster mash. I would love to know if Boris Pickett and the Crypt Kickers, uh, using that chain at the beginning of Monster Mash, if they were 
influenced somehow by progressive rock. I don't know. Look, Monster Mash being in the chart on the charts at the same time as money. And you might be thinking, hey, Amy, that's just one of those weird kind of novelty things. Well, here's the rest. All right, so here are the other songs. So at number 11 was Touch Me in the Morning, Diana Ross. Now here's the top 10, the songs that were on the chart at the same time as Money by Pink Floyd. Give Me Love, George Harrison. That's at number 10. Number nine, The Morning After by Maureen McGovern. Number eight, Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy, Bette Midler. Number seven, Kodachrome, Paul Simon. Number six, Diamond Girl, Seals and Crofts. Number five, Will It Go Round in Circles, Billy Preston. Number four, Smoke on the Water, Deep Purple. Number three, Shambhala, Three Dog Night. Number two, Yesterday Once More by The Carpenters. And the number one song, Bad Bad Leroy Brown by Jim Croce. None of those sound like money by Pink Floyd. I should add here that Pink Floyd does get another number one hit. They get that in 1980 uh, with the release of The Wall, uh, Another Brick in the Wall, hit number one in 1980. All right, what do you think of this song? I bet if you've ever been to an Elton John concert, you got that one right away, right? That's Funeral for a Friend by Elton John. And I would venture a guess that a lot of progressive rock purists would have a hard time uh, admitting that Elton John ever made anything at all that you would consider progressive rock. But you'd have to convince me that that's not progressive rock. Elton composed this piece, this piece, which segues into Love Lies Bleeding in 1973, and together they open up his album Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. That's the same year, by the way, as Dark Side of the Moon. It's the same year as Brain Salad Surgery. It's a year after Fragile by Yes. In other words, it's the heyday of progressive rock. Now, make no mistake that Elton John leans far more toward pop than rock, but Funeral for a Friend is evidence that this concept of rock as art was seeping into artists and bands 
that were known for other genres. The synthesizer, the overdubbed guitar, the orchestra, these are the elements of the song that Bruce Meyer, who was writing for United Press International in 1973, he said that it makes the song run the risk of being laughably pretentious. Meyer said that did not happen with this song in this case because it is such a well-composed song. Earlier in 1973, Meyer also wrote, he said, if anything ever kills off rock and roll, it will be pretentiousness. The stuffed shirt attitude that puts phony artiness over making people feel good. Rock music is meant to be enjoyed, not endured. That's a fair point. So I asked some progressive rock fans what they like about it. I posted the question in the three-day rock music debate Facebook group that I'm part of. I said, why do you like this stuff? And so shout out to Rick and Drew and David and Michael for answering. Here are some of the highlights of what they said. Many enjoy music for the emotional impact it has on them. They like the way the music or lyrics make them feel. Prog rock tends to satisfy the brain more than the heart. As a musician, I always gravitated toward music that was difficult. Odd time signatures, changes in tempo, and style within a single piece, long form compositions. Prog forces the listener to pay close attention. It's like solving a very hard puzzle. The lyrics go beyond boy meets girl love songs, also making the listener think. Now that is exactly why some people do not like it because not everyone wants to think about the music. You can say the exact same thing about all types of art, though. So this makes sense to me. Literature and film are great examples of this. Do you want to read a book that makes you think, or do you want to watch a movie that is still on your mind the next day, or do you just want to, as Meyer wrote, enjoy them? Do you have the stamina for repeated listening to music? If you do, if you want music that makes you think, then progressive rock might be for you. Electric Light Orchestra's first hit was its cover of Roll Over Beethoven in 1973. Jeff Lynn, one of the founders of the band, could not read or write music when he was writing songs for ELO. Some progressive rock purists, again, have a hard time acknowledging ELO as one of their own because ELO's hit songs also lean far more toward the pop side of the spectrum. You could pull one of their songs out of the album and it's fine. Using an orchestra as part of your background music was hardly uncharted territory in the early 70s, and it did not make you progressive rock. It was being done in disco, like this. Okay, Barry White and the Love Unlimited Orchestra with Love's theme. It was also being done in popish country like this. Paper Roses, 1973. Big orchestra at the beginning. 
I think that might be the first Osmonds reference I have made in the 20 episodes of this podcast. It won't be the last because I'm working on a episode on 70s variety television, and you can bet that the Osmonds will be part of that. However, back to prog rock. So uh, this idea of using an orchestra is not just the domain of progressive rock. But look, ELO's music went far beyond simply having an orchestra in the background. Yes, they are songs that rely on pop melodies, but I would argue that they have layers and richness that are reminiscent of the Beatles. In fact, the band has credited the Beatles as not just an influence, but a reason for electric light orchestra even existing. Bev Bevan, ELO's drummer, said, Yeah, there's no denying the fact that when we used to listen to things like Strawberry Fields and I Am the Walrus, that was like the beginning before we even formed ELO. And we really did say things like, imagine a band that sounded like that going out on the road. That was one of the reasons that ELO was formed, and I'm sure the Beatles had a lot to do with it. They weren't doing it, so we thought, we're not treading on their toes. Jeff Lynne had this to say about ELO's 1977 hit, Telephone Line. I can remember writing this on an old, out-of-tune, upright piano. I somehow squeezed this song out of it. I sound really desperate and lonely on this one, and maybe I was. It's about trying to find a girl every night, and you just can't get through to her. It was a scenario I thought of, but maybe it was prompted by the fact that I wasn't happy at the time. When I was a kid, I loved the plaintive songs of Del Shannon and Roy Orbison. My note, definitely not classical music artists. They wrote songs that were really sad, and those were the best. I thought I was writing those sort of songs. People tell me the song gives them a boost, but I never dreamed I was doing that for anybody.
You can hear his 50s influence there with the doo-wops. If you like that song, I highly recommend after this podcast episode ends that you head on over to YouTube and find that uh, clip of, I think it was from three or four years ago, of ELO playing this song live at Wembley Stadium. It will give you chills. From the album New World Order in 1977, it made it to number seven on the Billboard chart. To get the dial tone sound that sounds familiar to Americans, uh, Jeff Lynne made phone calls to a U.S. phone number and just let it ring over and over and recorded it. Because remember, there was no computer technology available at that time. Bruce Elder wrote of this song earlier this year. Telephone line might be the best Lennon-McCartney collaboration that never was. Lyrical and soaring in a way that manages to echo elements of Revolver and the Beatles without ever mimicking them. Dave Weigel wrote a history of prog rock called The Show That Never Ends, and he gave several interviews on his book tour in 2017. In an interview with Pitchfork in July of that year, he made an interesting observation. He is also a political writer for the Washington Post, and he covered the 2016 presidential election. He found that there was a lot of demographic overlap with prog rock bands of the 70s and Tea Party conservatives of the 21st century. The common denominator is white guy, and in the case now of you know modern times, older white guy. That might also speak to why the music was so derided by so many people. It did appeal to a rather limited group. I wonder, though, if nostalgia might be at play a little bit here in terms of its popularity. I hesitate to use the term popularity, but the the better acceptance, the wider acceptance of progressive rock now, uh, it could have something to do that nostalgia factor is at play. You hear a song that you heard on the radio growing up, and you think of it differently now than you did 40 or, in some cases, 50 years ago. Prog rock all but died in the 1980s, not long after Pink Floyd's The Wall. Weigel said that the music stopped progressing, and bands like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer decided that they could make more money reuniting and playing fan favorites than making new music. I tend to think that the influence of hip-hop in both rock and pop music may have had something to do with that too. Love it or leave it though, prog rock was some of the most innovative music that the 70s had to offer, and it challenged us collectively to rethink both art and authenticity. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the podcast, go tell somebody right now. Go tell them and share a link to an episode. My show notes and sources are on ftr70.com, and you can follow the show on Instagram at 70spodcast. Thanks, everyone. Bye for now.